I'm grateful for opportunities to share from God's Word, especially when it so well applies to the everyday life that, that it's, we, you're going to be clear, I hope it's clear today when we leave here, that there's things to be done. That's, I don't know where you are, and when we talk about racial reconciliation, I don't know where you are in the process. It may be the first time you've ever even considered it today, this morning. Um, but I, I hope and pray that the Spirit moves in such a way that when we leave here, we're very aware of the work that needs to be done and confident that Christ has done everything necessary for this work to be done. And so as we talk about this series, Transitions, Change That Matters. It's a really catchy subtitle. I love subtitles, so the change that matters, it really grips me. But transitions needs a little explanation. Their life is full of transitions. Uh, we change where we live. We change where we work. We change where we go to school. Uh, we have small changes in the house. Maybe you're the type of person that rearranges the furniture a lot just because you like to change. Or maybe your house is too small to rearrange furniture because there's nowhere else to put the bed because there's a door here, there's a window here, the closet doesn't open. I, I feel your pain. That's my life. Um, but whatever the case... There's lots of change in life. And, and one change that we made recently was from 101 Sandal Drive to 220 Desired Street. We now worship in a new location. And this is a big change for a church to make. It doesn't happen a lot. It happens a lot with church plants, but it doesn't happen a lot with churches. And so we need to consider what does this change mean for us. But also we wanted to be very intentional to not fall into this trap of thinking because we're in a new location Everything's going to blow up. We're going to be awesome now. People are going to flock to us. Or if the Spirit of God does move in a way that people do start coming to worship with us, we don't want to attribute it all to the fact that we change locations. So that's why we're talking about change that actually matters. So for the first two weeks, we talked about prayer and the Word of God. Flip that order. We talked about the Word of God and prayer. And then coinciding with Martin Luther King's birthday that just passed, we are talking about racial reconciliation. And then next week... Tomorrow is actually the national holiday, Sanctity of Human Life. Next week we'll focus on the Sanctity of Human Life. Now, it's not necessarily true that these are the, these are the four main issues. Certainly the Word of God and prayer are essential to the faith. But as a way of looking at the outworking of the gospel, we want to examine what does it mean to live in a culture where there's certainly some racial tension and division. And to live in a culture that so frequently devalues human life. In fact, we rob people of their humanity so that we can justify the actions we commit towards them. So that doesn't just include abortion, which is one of the main issues. That's why the holiday exists. But also includes human trafficking. And it includes racial reconciliation. Because there's there's ways in which our country is known for devaluing certain color skins so that we can justify behavior towards them. It's not a secret, right? It's interesting because we went to Germany this last summer, and all over Germany there are these monuments in the ground of where Jews were taken during the Holocaust. The, the nation as a whole grieves the Holocaust. And, and people are ashamed of that stain in their history. But in America... We're very good at sweeping things under the rug. When no doubt we have a lot of Holocaust stuff to deal with on our own. Abortion and, and African-American uh, segregation going back all the way to slavery. And then the annihilation of an entire, uh, entire people group who were here first. And then ongoing we have issues with 
with people from the Middle East now looking at them differently because of certain things that have happened. Right? And, and this is fed to us through the media, but certainly it's innate to us as sinners. So we need to talk about all of this. So I've been thinking a lot about what do we talk about when we talk about racial reconciliation? Because there's so much to cover. And then also the fact that I have lived my life as a biracial person, African-American and white, in a country very much divided over, namely, those two races. So I have a lot of personal things in this as well. It's, this is a very emotional subject for me. And so considering all of that, I want you to join me in prayer, trusting that the Spirit will lead us through this this morning. Father, I am grateful for a body of believers who take seriously this this call to examine our faith, to see not only how we are changed inwardly, but how that should affect how we behave outwardly. I thank you for the Crossing Church and opportunities we have to seek not only to consider truth so that we can quote platitudes whenever it's convenient, but that we would seek to know truth in a way that it changes us, a change that matters. That we would build one another up by speaking the truth in love. And I pray that this morning, as we seek to do that, that this body of believers will grow stronger, that we would be healthier as a church, as your people called to live on your mission. For the sake of the mission, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the, the health of this church, for your glory above everything else, we pray that you would move and work in each of us this morning. As we gather to worship Christ our King, that we would be encouraged by your word, equipped by your word for this mission and make the necessary changes to see the gospel work in us and through us. That that we'd be aware that the gospel gives us new life and gives us a new way of living. Lord, let it be that we would be known for how we worship Jesus in all of life. Waging war against shame and apathy. Waging war against injustice as we seek to establish your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we look to Jesus to find all that we need, right? That's what we claim anyway. We look to Jesus to find all that we need. So often we turn to other things and we repent. That's what repentance is. Turn away from those things and then back to Jesus because he truly is where we find all we need. And if If we actually enjoy Christ, then we would desire the same freedoms for all people to enjoy Christ, to find freedom from the suffering. Now, we endure all kinds of suffering in life. Some of it we bring onto ourselves. Some of it is imaginary. We just think it's there when it's really not. Some of it is from the outside, and it's unjust, and we should fight against it. But we all endure all types of suffering And we should desire all people to be freed from their suffering. With the knowledge that the gospel is already accomplished in Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and not yet accomplished because he's going to return for once and for all, lock up Satan and do away with evil. In fact, he gives the Apostle John a vision of this very thing. And he writes in Revelation 21.4, He, the Lord, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Praise God for that day. Long for that day. 
We should anticipate this freedom. We should desire this freedom not just for ourselves, but for all people. We should desire this. We should live our lives in a way that we actually desire this sort of freedom that's found only in Christ. Now, God also gave John a vision earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. He writes of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. You know, a nation in Greek is the word ethnos, which we use to have the word ethnicity. So we have to eliminate this Western thinking of these borders. That's a nation and think people groups. Every nation, all people groups from every tribe, all people, every language standing before the throne, before the Lamb. So all people of every ethnicity, there will be a representative from every ethnicity that has ever been and ever would be before the throne of God, worshiping Him for eternity. And this picture of the future is why we desire a diverse church. When we talk about diversity, we talk about it in many, in many ways. We need diversity in our age. We need diversity in our, in our ethnic, in, I mean, our well, ethnic, that's what we're talking about, in our economic status. We need diversity in, in perspective politically. We need diversity in our ethnicity. That's the most visible. So, one of the big takeaways from our time with the Soma family was this, this uh, need to, to, value, to, to evaluate our values based on reality rather than what will come or what would be. So, so instead of saying we value this because we want to value it, we should look around and see what we actually value. Does that make sense? If, we should, if a stranger came in here and we said we value diversity and they looked around the room does it look like we value diversity? And I don't, I don't want to bury anyone in shame because it's not beneficial, but we need, to, we need to base ourselves in reality when we try to move forward. And I don't think I need to put any effort into convincing you that the vision God gave John is far from reality, not just in the Crossing Church, but in our nation and in the world. Racial tensions are at a high, and unfortunately, very few people, if anyone, are turning to the church for any sort of answer to this. Because the church has done a good job to present ourselves as intolerant of those kind of discussions and supportive of the type of things that would be against racial reconciliation. I'm going to speak some with some vagueness this morning uh, for the sake of keeping emotions at bay. Uh, but I don't, I don't want you to um, make assumptions about what Kendrick has an opinion about. I want to try and preach from the Word of God so we can see what, what the objective truths are. So as, as um, we look in Scripture, racial harmony is a major theme. It's, it's all throughout the story of God. In the very beginning, God created one race. Right, Adam and Eve. They weren't white. They weren't black either. Somewhere in between. He created one race in the beginning. The human race. And he called it very good. It was the first thing he said was very good. When Adam and Eve came together as the very first family, he said this is very good. And then mankind rebelled against the Father and there was the fall. And then in the fall, sin entered the world and in the hearts of man. And self-centeredness began to rule, majoring on pride and arrogance, passed down to every human being from their fathers. And as sin increased, division between men increased in every kind of way. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, had a plan to fix it all from the very beginning. To save his people by grace, through faith in him, we are saved. And in that salvation from the human race, divided in every sort of way because of sin, God redeems a people. And everyone is divided now into two races. The chosen race, the redeemed, and everybody else. Now this chosen race we saw in the vision of John is made up of all kinds of ethnicities, but it's a chosen race of God, the people of God. The Lamb's book of life is definite. God's already written it. Everyone believes that. It doesn't matter where you fall on the soteriological lines. Everyone believes that. There is a certain amount of people God will save, and they will be from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and it will make up the chosen race. This is 1 Peter 2, 9. The people of God are spoken of as a chosen race, a holy nation, a holy ethnos, set apart as a new people united in Christ. This is the story of God. So we have been chosen as a singular. I want to pay attention to the singular and the plural sense as we read through Scripture this morning. We've been chosen as a singular, unified, holy, eternal ethnicity whom Jesus Christ, through His blood, has purchased. That's redemption. He's redeemed us. This one chosen race will be comprised of all people from every nation. All right. Now that is the vision God gave John. So if this chosen race is to be made up of all ethnicities, and that's the picture of heaven, what are we missing as the crossing church? What about the gospel are we not believing if our church isn't becoming more representation, a better representation of the surrounding culture? We know the ethnic makeup of our city. If you just open your eyes, you can see them. All different colors and shades. And that does not make up the population of the Crossing Church. This is just reality. Stay away from the shame zone. Don't feel shame. Shame is bad. Hopefully we can approach this the same way we approached prayer last week and devotion to Scripture the week before. It's unnecessary and unhelpful to heap shame because shame isn't a great motivator to accomplish things. We're, we're failing at something, but our God is so full of grace. He's so merciful. So instead of feeling shame, let us consider the truth and believe it. And in so doing, we can experience gospel change that spurs us to change our actions it changes the makeup of the crossing church to the glory of God. He's our only hope. He's the one that's going to make it happen. And perhaps there's some who are already buried in shame and you can't get out of it. I know, I feel that. We feel that about our, our indwelling sin often, ashamed of it. And this is an outwardly expressed thing, so everybody sees it and knows it. So shame can easily take over. I just want, to, I want you to experience a freedom from that. And trusting Jesus is in control. He's always been in control. None of this is a surprise to him. It's always been an issue. It will always be an issue. Sin is in the world. And one day he will do away with it forever. But that doesn't give us permission to just sit around and do nothing. Because there's also this group who doesn't, we don't feel ashamed about it. We're falsely secure in the knowledge of truth and content to just stay where we are. And I don't know where you are in this, but both are a problem. The enemy wants to keep us fruitless, and he uses both shame and apathy to do so. So let's wage war this morning against both of those things. I heard a pastor say once, 
Everyone loves this idea of reconciliation until it involves truth-telling and confessing and repenting and dismantling and forgiving and peacemaking. Whew! I'm not so sure I want to try and do that anymore. It hurts. Sanctification hurts. But it's for our good and it's for the glory of our King. It's so worth pursuing. So let's, pre- let's be prepared together as we address these uncomfortable things and even painful things to pursue specifically racial reconciliation. And when we believe the gospel, we discover a father who's gracious and merciful, renewing his mercies every morning for us. Because we're going to fail again and again. But he's got us. And he's got everything we need. Let's press in, let's press forward, and let's see some change that matters. Now the reasons for pursuing racial unity, in case you think we need some. The reasons for pursuing racial unity according to the Bible. That was a given, but I just wanted to make sure you know I'm not making these up. These are things we've talked about before, and so I'm going to just read over them because I want to move on to some more specific things about moving forward. But, but these, these you will, you'll know they're from Scripture because it's so obviously from the Word of God. We pursue racial re- reconciliation because it is a matter, it's a matter of the sanctity of human life because we are all created in the image of God. Everyone. We stand passionately against abortion, and we refuse to vote for candidates who are pro-abortion. I believe in a similar way, we should stand against candidates who are overtly racist. Now, there's some ambiguity there, because what does racist mean? And hopefully we can have some clarity by the end of this. We, We speak easily against and passionately against human trafficking, because it's obviously a horrendous thing. I believe we should also passionately be against racism because it's a horrendous thing. Secondly, it is a matter of unity in Christ above everything else. So it is somewhat of a shame, though we're not shaming anyone, that the church can be so homogenous when we see such great diversity in public school systems and in workplaces. Why is it where Christ is, there's a lack of this diversity? It's also a matter of loving our neighbors, and it's a matter of loving our brothers and sisters, and it's a matter of loving our enemy. It is seeking the kingdom and living in light of eternity, and it is the type of struggle that promotes our sanctification for the health of every individual member of the church and the church as a whole. I believe that had we not segregated the church long ago, that we, church as a whole, would be much healthier today. Because of these different perspectives and the needed diversity that makes us stronger. We could have avoided some major heresy in the church had we just been more open to diversity. And moving forward from here, God help us be more diverse so that the crossing and the church as a whole could be healthier for the sake of the kingdom and to the glory of our God. Now, race reconciliation is an evidence of gospel belief because reconciliation itself is an outworking of the gospel. There is this vertical aspect that we've talked about each week, this vertical aspect of reconciliation between us and God, this needed reconciliation in order for there to be the horizontal aspect of reconciliation that is an outworking of the gospel through us. Both of these have individual and corporate implications, and we're going to look at both of those. In order for us to understand the horizontal reconciliation, we must first rightly understand 
the vertical. If we're ever going to be ethnically harmonious, we need to understand how we have harmony with our Father. So let's begin there. I want to offer you a working definition of reconciliation. I'm going to try to pick up speed because there's a lot to cover. Um, This will be podcast if you need to go back. All right. The definition of reconciliation that we're working with this morning, it's kind of wordy, but I've added to it over the years because I want it to be as comprehensive as possible. The reconciliation as a whole, not race reconciliation, just reconciliation, think between us and God, is the establishing of peace in relationship where there had previously been hostile division. This includes the removal of the offense or offenses that caused the disturbance in peace and harmony, a restitution of what was taken, and the bringing an end to alienation by the establishment of a new identity in Christ. So, key points. It's a removal of offenses, the restitution of what was taken, and an end to alienation by the establishment of new identity in Christ. We're we're complete now. We're brought back to the Father. We're where we should have been. We're reconciled. Things are as they should have been. And all of this is because of Christ and for the sake of Christ and to the glory of Christ. All of this is laid out beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is going to be our biggest chunk of Scripture this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. It does well to capture both the vertical and horizontal, individual and corporate aspects. So pay attention to the, the plurality of the, the language and the, the singularity and, and the horizontal and the vertical. That's what we're looking for when we read this, which is somewhat of a familiar passage. Are we there? All right. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone, that's that's singular, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us, that's plural, to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, that's a plural you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see both plural and singular. God is doing a work of reconciliation. For the sake of reconciling more and more people to himself. The life and mission of Jesus becomes ours through reconciliation. He came to demonstrate this work of the gospel and empower us to continue this work of the gospel with his spirit on the day of Pentecost. We were filled with the spirit, became the body of Christ. Christ is our head and we are leading the way of reconciliation in all the world through the power and through the work of the gospel. We live by faith every day in Him. God makes His appeal through us, His people, on behalf of God, His church, the body of Christ, His hands and feet, actually moving and working as a version of the incarnate Christ, the body of Christ, working in the world to bring about reconciliation. This is profound. This is amazing. This has all sorts of implications that we must consider, certainly as we consider racial reconciliation, this ongoing work of the gospel in us, and through us. We have a new identity as Christians, which doing matters because of our being, because of who we are, 
are doing matters. And Christ has given us a new identity, a new creation, righteous before God, ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. We're to be all about Jesus every day in all of life. Everything is about worshiping Him. So, that being said, do we believe in a gospel that does this? Do we believe in a gospel that doesn't just save us and reconcile us as as an individual End of statement. Or do we believe in a gospel that saves us and brings us to be a part of a body who are now working together to be ministers of reconciliation in all of life and every day? Why are we far louder on gospel principles than we are gospel practices? Why do we focus more attention when we're working through accountability or we're feeling shameful about our sin? Why do we focus more attention on gospel work in us than gospel work through us? Why do we celebrate strong doctrine on paper and shrug off social justice, which is strong doctrine in action? Perhaps these are symptoms of our self-centeredness that we just push aside because it's easy. But if the gospel changes who we are, it changes everything about life. It changes everything we are. So it changes everything we do. Now, how does this all work? Well, we have to ask verse 17, what's the therefore, therefore? And go back to the beginning of this passage, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls, some versions say compels or constrains. I want you to really grasp. It grips us. It holds us. It moves us. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let it be clear. If you have been saved by God, you do not belong to you. This is not about you. It was never meant to be about you. Praise God for your salvation. Have joy in your salvation. And then move forward in this work of salvation. You are no longer controlled by your selfish desires. Your your hunger for comforts. Instead, you're pushed forward to be uncomfortable. You're controlled by the love of Christ to love all people everywhere. to, To hate injustice in the world. In the same way Christ hated injustice and fought against it. We are called as His people to fight against it. For the love of Christ compels us to do so. Your life is not your life. Love now defines you. We are considered to be the body of Christ as one people reconciled to God to be ministers of reconciliation, no longer belonging to ourselves. This biblically is is not something we come to often unless we're talking about just dealing with personal sin. Because we want to feel reconciled. We want to feel good about belonging to Jesus. And when we talk about being ministers of reconciliation, we're just talking about preaching the gospel, period. Just preach the gospel and that's enough. In fact, when many brothers stand up to fight against injustice, often what's said is just preach the gospel. We need to consider how this gospel we're preaching calls us to do more than just preach the gospel. If we're actually preaching the full counsel of the gospel, it should mean something for how we live our lives. 
So let's revisit this definition of reconciliation and think in terms of horizontally, man to man, and corporately. The establishing of peace and relationship where there had previously been hostile division, that includes the removal of offenses, the restitution of what was taken, and an end to alienation by the establishment of a new identity in Christ. Thinking man to man, how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world, the removal of offenses, the restitution of what was taken, and an end to the alienation by the establishment of a new shared corporate identity as the body of Christ. To bring us to a point of moving to action, we need to first consider racism on two fronts. First of all, there is this racist bias that every human being has. We're biased to our own race because of the sin of of pride. Self-exaltation is in our hearts. It's a sinful nature. So in a sense, all human beings by our sinful nature are racist. Now we often talk about our lust problems or our pride problems. We often talk about our struggles with anger or addiction issues. But I urge you to be more vocal about your racist issues. Examine your heart. How do you view people of another race? Don't be buried in shame about it. In the same way, you shouldn't be buried in shame about any other sin in your life. It's a part of your old nature. The new you isn't a racist. In Christ, we're not racist. But we can say, just like we can say about any sin, I used to be racist. In Christ, I'm freed from that. Still an ongoing struggle. For biracial people, it's a confusing struggle. But we all struggle. Let's just be honest about it. Let's get it out there. Now, and Now, we have to see that distinctly as an individual issue. Because when we talk about racism corporately, it's altogether a different thing. And in fact, it's a, it's a bigger problem. Because it's easy to ignore. There, there is this major issue, and I think the, the, the primary thing we need to address as the church is this major issue of a, a sense of racism that is corporate. And primarily not a privatized cognitive issue or personal heart issue. It's systemic. It's institutional. It's an emotional experience accumulated over centuries of oppression and suffering by a particular people in our nation, namely African Americans. Centuries of suffering. The first slave was recorded to land in the colonies in in 1619. Nearly 400 years This has been a problem. Now, there's certainly other races involved in this, but in America, the the tension between African Americans and Anglos is the major issue. Anglo non Hispanics. We have to say that in certain forms. Now, I, I, I think we should address corporately all nations, all people, but specifically in Monroe, I think it's more prominently a problem between whites and blacks. So as we talk about systemic racism, as, the gospel, as a gospel-believing people, we must press urgently and intentionally and consistently against this issue and fight it at its face, which is injustice. So as we consider it corporately, we must consider injustice. And this, this is where it gets complicated because there's all sorts of injustice in the world. And when we talk about justice in Scripture and, and the war against injustice, we have to include all types of injustice. But today we're focusing in on racial reconciliation. So I'm I'm only going to talk about that. When there is an injustice in the world, 
When a system is broken, action should be taken by the people of God to actively right the wrongs, just as Christ came to actively right the wrongs. And that is the outworking of the, of the gospel. We saw Jesus do this in, in the gospel accounts. We saw Jesus do this with the hungry. He did it to heal the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He approached people of different ethnic backgrounds, though it was a culturally a taboo. He addressed women, though it was culturally a, a taboo, along with breaking all sort of cultural norms. He addressed the sins of the culture, especially that of the religious people, in action and in parable. And in teaching, he was constantly about speaking against injustice because that's why he came, to restore all things, to bring reconciliation. And systemic racism is naturally biased in favor of the racial majority. So though, when we talk about racism individually, it's very much an every person, every race issue in America. When we talk about racism corporately, it very much is a problem of the majority oppressing the minorities. Now, you can process that, and you can, you can fall wherever you may fall, but I believe it's abundantly clear if you just look at our history that there is the development of this devastating myth that has laced its way through all of America and is virtually in every single corner of our nation's history. And the myth is white supremacy. Now, I call it a myth, not because it's fake, because it's not a reality. White, as a race, is not supreme. But it's certainly, white supremacy, as an idea, ideology, exists. And it has influenced everything in our nation. And the more you study it, the more you see it has influenced everything. And it's evidenced by the, the Native American massacres and hostile takeover during colonization. It's evidenced by the transatlantic slave trade and 250 years of chattel slavery that's treating human beings as property, less than human. And that was followed by 100 years of a race-based caste system known as the Jim Crow era and the intentional targeting of blacks and Latinos in the war against drugs that was perpetuated by political campaigns that to this day affects the population of incarceration. This ongoing majorly disproportionate incarceration rates of minorities and statistically proven, look up the, the statistics, statistically proven harsher sentencing for similar crimes when committed by people of color. And we, we call this the new Jim Crow. Cultural appropriation, redlining, food deserts, predatory bank lending, white flight, and its reverse, gentrification. And that's a start to the problem that is currently happening in America. It's happening, it's happening in the shadows, and it doesn't affect the majority. So the majority continues to live life unhindered by these issues Unless there's a pause to consider the injustice. And then the hope is the church rise up against these injustices because the Spirit of God is at work moving in us. In the same way Christ possessed this war against injustice, we, his body, should have this war against injustice. You can look into all of this stuff, it's, it's undeniable. Either you conclude, that there's something wrong with the systems in our country and there's systemic racism. You conclude that's a reality. Or you believe minority races, or races are inferior and deficient and somehow deserving of these mistreatments. 
which is racist. So you can try to justify these problems, but I don't know why you would want to. No one should feel guilty about them or ashamed of being white in America. I don't want you to be ashamed of being white in America, but let us view our history and then see the privilege that exists and leverage that privilege to make war against justice or injustice. How? Well, well, the white majority has power. And when you're in power, it's very difficult to relinquish that power. So there's a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So this is why it's easier to ignore the problems. Because we have a vested interest in maintaining how things currently are. And that makes it harder to see various forms of injustice And often minorities will call attention to these injustices because they're suffering under them and oppression and Christians in the majority in order to leverage privilege should continually work towards cultivating a humility that opens our ears to hearing the voice of those suffering and building relationships with those suffering rather than dismissing their claims. And the dismissal of a claim can be as simple as, well, let's just wait till the facts come out. It doesn't have to be, I think you're wrong, shut up with all that race stuff. When you're suffering, silence can be crushing. Google Martin Luther King Jr. quotes silence and read all the different ways he addressed silence is the problem. Because in the end, we expect the enemy to attack, but we don't expect friends to be silent. We should come together to wage war against injustice. Now, if, you're, if you are arrogant about your perspective and you are unwilling to listen to the minority perspective, then it seems obvious to me that you don't have a mind of Christ, who, though he was in the very nature of God, became a servant to men and put himself under those who were, in reality, under him. Christ alone is supreme. There is no supreme race. Christ alone is supreme. Yet he, the truly supreme one, submitted himself to servitude. He drew near and sympathized and grew empathy and suffered on behalf of those who were suffering. And as we diversify, our lives will no doubt grow more difficult. And we fight the sinful addiction to comfort and it'll encourage this sanctification that needs to happen and the sacrifice of our selfish preferences and we will grow to appreciate diversity. It doesn't seem like it, but we will grow to appreciate the the difficulties, the differences, because we see how it makes us better. We understand that, that diverse is better than same. And the different cultural backgrounds will make us stronger as a church because it will allow us to see the problems from different perspectives and address things with gospel truth in a way that it should be addressed. And in doing so, we'll bear one another's burdens and we'll see love cast out fear. And we don't unite around secondary commonalities. We unite around Christ. That requires everyone to confess weakness. That means everyone. Minorities and those in the majority confess weakness and sacrifice all that's necessary to be one in Christ for the sake of loving one another. So above all else, we cling to and we cherish and we value unity that we have in Christ. 
aware of the beautiful diversity that comes along with all of that. We become more like this vision that we saw John had, but we aren't talking about color blindness. So please don't hear me say it's better to ignore color because it's certainly not. It's more like a painting made up of many colors on one canvas. It's more like a mosaic made up of many broken, beautiful pieces cemented together. It's more like a tapestry woven of all these beautiful, vibrant colors with this one common thread. This diversity with unity. And our unity is Christ. The cement is Christ. The common thread is Christ. The canvas is Christ. And it's beautiful when it comes together. But we have to step back and look at it. Now all of this is a result of gospel belief. All of it is a result of gospel belief. Racial reconciliation is a qualitative application of gospel. Both in in function and in practice. And that's in epistemology, how things look on paper, your doctrine, and in ethics, in action, in doing. The righteous fight for what is just because of who they are. So we have this two sides of the same coin, this inward and outward expression of the gospel, righteousness and justice. And that's a theme all throughout Scripture. Namely, Micah chapter 6. Verse 6 through 8, we have a section entitled, What Does the Lord Require? So we're going to get an answer here to this question. What does the Lord require? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What sacrifice is the question. What do I have to bring to God? What is enough? And He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It is not that you would have to give everything. It's not enough to just not be racist. We must fight against it. We must be anti-racist. We have to do justice. That's required of us if we believe the gospel. We see the gospel address our sin against God. It It makes righteousness clear, but righteousness compels us to love and doing justice. We can we can't separate these two. So we see in 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. You can't separate love for God and love for your brother. We can't separate God, Christ's work on the cross for reconciling us to the Father and reconciling us to one another. This is, this is sections out of Ephesians chapter 2. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself, our peace, is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You heard that read over us. All hope is in Christ. We put it all on the table. We lay aside everything in order to see Christ exalted. 
And then a natural overflowing of the gospel is to do justice. Doing justice is as basic to Christianity as being righteous. Hopefully that's abundantly clear. We must be righteous. And the flip side of that coin is you must do justice. You must fight injustice. This is Christianity. All throughout Scripture we see it. I think that when we focus so much on the vertical and on being righteous and not enough on the horizontal and the doing justice, we develop a a weak understanding of this corporate responsibility to maintain what is moral. So when issues of Christian conscience arise, say in a, I don't know, a political election series, when issues of conscience arise, many Christians don't know where to file that because they have weak theology when it comes to the outworking of the gospel, though they may have strong theology when it comes to what does it mean to be righteous and moral. It's weird how there's a disconnect. Somehow, very vile and evil things can come from an individual and we dismiss it because of what, you know, he says, you know, he says he's a Christian. Or in our camp, I think we more likely fall into the danger of having strong theology, boasting in gospel centrality. Then we reduce all of Christianity down to five points of soteriology and we totally miss the war against injustice. Because, you know, I got my five points and I'm good. It's far more than this. It's complex. How can Christ be all of these different things? Well, as Cho Baraka would say, maybe he's both. Just as our reconciliation with God is inseparable from our reconciliation with other, others, our righteousness is inseparable from this fight against justice or for justice. Jonathan Lehman wrote, True faith always gives way to deeds. Justification always to justice. So when we're faced with injustice because of an oppressive system and our responses just preach the gospel, it leaves our brothers and sisters who are experiencing the oppression feeling a certain kind of way. Confused and hurt and angry and abandoned. If we only preach the gospel with an individualistic focus on justice and righteousness, then it would, it would neglect the, the opportunities we have to corporately fight injustice. But if we only focus on social injustice, then we will no doubt lose the necessary theological undergirding that carries us onward in this pursuit of upholding what is right and what is holy. That, that is to say, we need both everything that we would say is doctrinally sound and everything that is to say we are against injustice. We need it all. We have to have balance. And I'm okay swinging the pendulum every once in a while if it means we're moving towards balance. Let's not settle in any category. Let's constantly come together and diversify so that we can have balance in these ways. We must have both. At times it may seem like we're nowhere. We're just lost in between. But let's keep moving forward. Let's not settle in shame or apathy. And once we find freedom... And the vertical love we have with our Father that enables us to love horizontally. And the primary expression of that love, I believe, is doing justice. And T. Wright, a theologian, said, and pastor said, justice is what love looks like when it faces the problems its neighbors are dealing with. Similarly, Eric Mason says, proximity breeds empathy. 
distance breeds suspicion. Those who are experiencing the suffering of racial injustice want relief, no doubt. It hurts. But if you aren't familiar with how much it hurts, then it's easy to discount, discount it. It's easy to ignore it. However, if you draw near long enough, long enough to empathize with those being oppressed, then no doubt your indifference will dissipate and you'll quickly want to fight for justice. That is if the Spirit of God is living in you. Now, we, can fully, we can't fully understand another person's perspective, but we certainly can try by getting close enough to build empathy. Our hope and our direction all comes back to Jesus, and that's where we need to start it. That's where we need to end it. It all comes back to our Lord who hates injustice. We have a king who is just, and he pours out wrath on all injustice. He is woke to every injustice. He is aware of every brothel, every sweatshop, every drug lord, every racist. They're currently in his sight. He knows of them, and he hates it. The scripture doesn't just talk about he hates evil. He hates also evil doers, and they will forever be under his wrath. And we, the body of Christ, should rise up with Him as His heart burns with zeal to make the world right again. We should see we are the people of God joined together to make the world right again by the power of the gospel in us and through us. There's work to be done. And God has given us everything we need to do that work. So we trust in Jesus. And when it's hard, we trust in Jesus. And when there's confusion and I said something wrong and I hurt His feelings, we trust in Jesus. When I'm just uncomfortable and I don't know what to say and I don't know where to start, we trust in Jesus. When we look around the room and still after years of trying this, everybody's still white, we trust in Jesus. Don't be buried in shame and certainly don't give up hope because Jesus is able and He's already done a necessary work for us to come together to do this work. Talk to somebody about it. Confess your sin. And for the love of God, get some black friends, right? Just go talk to somebody. Even if you have to start with, hey, this is kind of awkward. I don't have any black friends. And I know I would be a healthier person. I know my church would be healthier if we had greater diversity and greater perspective. And I want God to be glorified through the salvation of many, through a diverse church. I want to stand as the crossing church to a world that looks at us and sees the diversity as a testament to the power of Christ for reconciliation. We should desire this, first and foremost, to the glory of our King. And the more apathetic we are towards it, the more lacking we'll be. And the less likely anything's ever going to change. It requires intentionality. Now we, His church, with Christ as our head, are filled with the Spirit and empowered to carry out this mission. We will be working towards this goal until we die. I know that's not encouraging. It's never going to be accomplished. Racial division has been an issue since the very beginning. Racial division will always be an issue. Racism will not be eliminated any more than pride or lust this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean we just welcome our pride and our lust. And we certainly shouldn't welcome racism 
individualistically or corporately. Now, to be sure, as, as we close, to be sure, I want to read two passages of Scripture so that we can rightly see there are sinners on every side of this issue. Rather than make the claim that there are good people on both sides of the issue, I would rather more accurately say there are sinners everywhere. And our hope is in Christ. Right? I don't... I told you I was going to be vague, and I'm trying to stay vague. So I've, I've done a lot of reading because there's a lot I want to say and I shouldn't say. I, I would love to have these conversations one-on-one, though. I really want to go deeper for those who want to go deeper. I don't think there's any fruit in being divisive or offensive um, or rallying together in an echo chamber. All those who agree with me, I, I really want to find freedom from all of those things. So we need to remain tied to Scripture, and that's why I want to close with these words. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23 For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In Ephesians 2, 14-16, a theme out of Ephesians 2 is so clear. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in him one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you have done everything we need you to do, that the gospel is sure that there is hope, there's reason to be glad, there is good news because we have reconciliation with our Father through the work of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would increasingly make us aware of the reconciliation that needs to happen across ethnic lines specifically, that we would see this gospel, this good news is for all people. And it's not just a call to go to all nations and bring the gospel, though we certainly should do that, but it's a call to be here, present in this cultural context, aware of the many different perspectives and, and different ethnic backgrounds that are around us, that we would be diligent and intentional to war against injustice, both in, in our personal lives and in uh, the national arenas, that we would be bold in our, our social media posts and bold in conversation and bold in whatever might arise in the day-to-day, uh, we would be more and more aware of the injustice as we grow to empathize with those who are suffering the injustice. All of this, God, I know is a work of your gospel, so I pray that we would lean in to what is true, that we would faithfully proclaim what is true, and that we would faithfully live by this truth as an outworking of the gospel. A desire to see you glorified in it. Lord, I thank you for this body of believers and that you have graciously made me a part of it, that you have graciously given me a voice to it. I pray that you would humble us all, that we would do justice, but also with loving kindness as we walk humbly with you. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts as we confess sin to one another and remove us to be broken over that sin as we see you have been broken because of it. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.